Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we teach you how to make a better investment and retirement portfolio. Our goal is to explain everything from basic to advanced concepts in plain language that you can understand, whether you are a beginning investor or a professional. Welcome to episode eight, back, back, back it up, the episode on backtesting. This is possibly going to be one of the most useful episodes for you all, whether or not you know what backtesting is. The reason? This is something I spent many, many years trying to hone in on and understand, and I was blessed to be mentored by some of the most fantastic people in trading who know this subject quite well. So this episode is going to be a combination of the past eight years of my failures, trials, and eventual successes in backtesting and making quantitative trading models. Now, even if you've never backtested, or you're a data scientist and think you already know what this is, trust me, this episode will shape the way you think about investing and trading. These days, backtesting is all over the news, whether you're watching CNBC or reading the Wall Street Journal. Even the most qualitative, gut-feeling type traders read backtests because it helps them sort of view the world in their own framework. So briefly, what is backtesting? You've actually already probably seen backtesting, not only on CNBC, which you hopefully watch sparingly, but also on ESPN. So if you think it's too complicated, trust me, you've already been exposed to it. So backtesting is simply taking an investing or trading strategy, forming it into rules, and then seeing how those rules perform historically. A simple example you may see on TV is, when the S&P was down three days in a row, it was also down on the fourth day. Or on ESPN, you may hear, a first round seed has never lost in the first round in NCAA basketball. Just a heads up, I'm also making these backtests and these numbers up right now. So what is the rule in the first example? We, dis- we define backtests as containing rules. Well, in the first example with the S&P, you want to see if it's worthwhile to buy an S&P ETF if it's be- been down the past three days in a row and you think it might be time for it to come back on the fourth day. So you want to see historically if this trade has worked out in the past. Typically, somebody would make a test that looks back every time in history that when the S&P has been down the past three days in a row and then measure what happens on the fourth day. There are a lot more fun nuances we're going to get to in this episode and how to properly test a thesis like this. In the ESPN example, the backtest rule was simple. Has any number one seed ever lost in the first round? You go through all the data historically and test to see if that's ever happened. Now before you shut off this podcast, know that you don't have to be a programmer anymore to do stuff like this. You can now use tools that are very simple and easy to use. Tingo actually has a couple tools to do this and we're building out more. But this is also becoming a general trend in finance. Backtests are not only becoming more accessible via tools, but they're also becoming more mainstream in financial news articles. This podcast episode will contain some resources where you can backtest theories whether or not you're a programmer. We will also walk through a backtest example that you can do in Excel. And I want you to know, I made this episode also because I see backtests in the news and the media and often they do it completely wrong. Not only that, oftentimes Wall Street analysts, when I would get publications all the time, within the first 10 seconds I would look at it and already find something wrong in their backtest. The number of online arguments I've gotten about wrong backtests is way too high. Even though these tools are becoming a lot more accessible, even for hardcore programmers, we still need to make sure we know how to use these tools. Likewise, having a hammer, nails, and wood won't build a new house. We still got to learn how to use those tools, and this podcast episode is going to help you learn data science and markets and backtesting in the proper way. And like I said, this is going to be combining the last eight years of my experiences, and I hope it's going to be so useful for you all. And before we get into all this, I just want to make a few Tingo announcements. 
To start off, we have some fantastic news. So Modern Trader, uh, last episode we spoke with Garrett Baldwin, actually featured Tingo in their cover story. Now that issue of Modern Trader's out, it's the July issue, and you can find it at Barnes & Noble. If by the time you're listening to this podcast, the July issue is out of print, just go ahead and shoot me an email and I'll send you the PDF of where not only Tingo's mentioned, but a few other fintech companies that were mentioned in the uh, last podcast episode. This is a huge honor for Tingo, and we are incredibly thankful for it. Secondly, Tingo.com is now available in a mobile version, so check it out on your device. It's pretty surreal to think that people now have a high-end financial app in their pockets. You know, I, I use Facebook, or I use Twitter, I use all these great apps, I use Google, and what I often find is that I just use these tools without thinking, but having created a mobile version of the site, it kind of hit me how profound the mob- mobile technology revolution really is. I mean... With Google, you have the world's knowledge in your pocket. And likewise, when I was making Tingo and once the mobile version was out, it was a bit surreal for me to think that like people now have a high-end risk tool in their pockets. They now have financial data that surpasses any other source out there right in their pockets. Uh, it was a really profound thought, and I hope you all enjoy the mobile UI. It's still being tweaked, so as you continue to use it, you'll notice be- getting better and better. And thirdly, the third update is that Tingo now uses modern cryptography. So when using Tingo.com, your data is now encrypted using the latest security measures. Uh, this is great if you're putting in your portfolio data for the chat system. Just know that you now have the latest security. And finally, the fundamental data has received a massive, massive update. We now have structured fundamental data for over 4,300 companies, approximately 1,100 were added, uh, including companies that no longer trade and including companies that are very small, they're microcap companies. So you can not only do that, but you can also see the annual statements in addition to the quarterly. Previously, Tingo.com only offered quarterly data. We now have the 10Ks or annual data, and there are now restatements. So now you can look at a fundamental data sheet and you can see, you can compare side by side the restated numbers versus the numbers that were released the day of. So this is all structured. You point and click and you can graph it. You can do all this sort of stuff, um, things you can't do anywhere else. It's not a PDF. It's actually structured, clickable data that you can interact with. So we're very excited about that. If you like what Tingo's doing, whether it's the podcast, the website, mission, or so on, we ask that you pay what you can on tingo.com forward slash support. That's T-I-I-N-G-O dot com forward slash S-U-P-P-O-R-T, tingo.com forward slash support. That concludes the announcement, so we're going to get right back into it. So let's walk through a tradable backtest and how we can create one. This is going to be the foundation for the rest of the podcast, and you may notice I'm going to spend a lot more time discussing how to test a backtest and the problems with backtests rather than how to create one. This is because there's so many traps you can make as a data scientist in finance, and unlearning then relearning is so much harder than learning it right the first time. So to continue, we're going to need to define a backtest study versus a tradable backtest. Previously, we gave examples of two backtests, but if we think back to them, they're not really tradable, they're just studies. One of our examples was, is if the S&P falls in the past three days, what happens on the fourth day? That's an interesting study, but we can't really trade that. So in order for a backtest to be tradable, we need two conditions. One, there has to be a buy condition. And two, you may have guessed it, there has to be a sell condition. So a markets example would be, what would happen if I bought a stock after it fell 5% in one week? Now this is an incomplete tradable backtest because it gives us the condition for buying a stock, but not selling. A complete rule would be, if a stock falls 5% 
in five days, I will buy and hold the stock for 10 days and then sell the shares. Here we have both a buy condition and a sell condition. So for the rest of this podcast episode, I'm going to use this example. To test an idea like this, we can simply do this in Excel or Google Spreadsheets. In the blog, blog.tingo.com, B-L-O-G.T-I-I-N-G-O.com, I attached a link to this backtested strategy I wrote in Google Spreadsheets. Uh, if you click on episode 8, you're going to be able to see it, and there'll be a link right there. So because of the feedback from all of you, I've learned it's not very effective to walk through a spreadsheet via podcast. So we're going to skip over all that, but the spreadsheet is on the blog, and it's very well annotated. So even if you have never backtested something before, you'll be able to follow along perfectly. Now, this spreadsheet also goes through a very simple example of why we use something called log returns instead of simple returns when doing backtests. Typically, many people are used to using simple returns. In the media, when you hear the S&P was up 3% on the day, they very much typically mean a simple return. But when you're doing a backtest, you have to use something called log returns. And we discussed this in a prior episode, so I won't repeat it here as to what the differences are. But the spreadsheet on the blog contains a very simple example that makes it very clear why we have to use log returns over simple returns. Anyway, with the idea of a tradable backtest established, I want to dig into something else. I now want to dig into the problems I see all the time in both news media and publications, and the reasons I've gotten in so many internet arguments, which possibly is the least desirable of all mediums to argue. But I see these problems all the time in publications I've gotten from hedge funds, banks, uh, the media, you name it, these problems persist. This is a big issue because right now data science is becoming a hot topic, yet in my opinion, finance has really been the leader in data science. The reason why is that data science is now becoming popular in tech, but in finance, if your data science is not correct, you're going to lose money and your job depends on whether or not you make money. So it very much typically prunes out poor data scientists and also leads to an exploration of many different theories, many different ways to do data science. And the problem with this is that in finance, the incentives when you discover something new or discover something novel is to keep it to yourself. Because if you put it out into the public, then everybody has access to it and then your idea is no longer unique. And oftentimes the way you make money in markets is because no one else knows your idea. We discussed this in a prior episode, so I won't repeat it here. But there's this concept of reducing alpha. As more people know your strategy, that strategy becomes less profitable. Likewise, if you develop a method for backtesting, you're often incentivized not to really reveal it because it, re- it could possibly reduce the profitability or it could possibly give other people your intellectual property. But in this podcast episode, I'm going to reveal all those quote-unquote secrets, which I don't really consider secrets, um, to all of my listeners. And like I said, this has been crafted over mentoring under market wizards, under famous uh, traders, under very good traders, and they've been sort of guiding me and teaching me and how to approach this problem. But if I really think about it, and I see this problem quite frequently, is that I do think finance data scientists have been doing this for a lot longer than in tech. And because their job depends on it, finance tends to have a more rigorous approach toward data scientists. If you're wrong, you could blow up and lose everything. If you're wrong in tech, you may have slightly missed your earnings targets. To end this sort of section, I just want to discuss a quick story. And I want to, I want to discuss this story because I hope that this will never happen to you all. And you, if it does, you all will be very much prepared for it. Companies sometimes come to me and they pitch me products, uh, products like data or strategies, that sort of stuff. Now, this one company comes to me and pitches me a product with insane performance. I am talking, this performance is something I've never really seen before. 
the performance was just mind-blowing. And as soon as I saw it, I was immediately skeptical. You know, there's this uh, concept in markets that if it's too good to be true, it probably is. I guess that goes outside of markets, but it's very much true when you're looking at trading strategies. And when people come to me and they show me something like this, I always listen. I always spend a lot of time crafting just insane amount of feedback and structuring it and explaining everything because as a person trying to grind out, grind out a new business himself, I totally empathize. Uh, many of my users and listeners have done this for me, so I'll do it for others. It's the golden rule. Anyway, this company comes back to me and they show me this. And I start asking them a few questions to see if they know how to backtest. And within two questions, it was very clear that they didn't know how to do it. And because of that, I couldn't trust their results. Um, you know, it's not their fault. It's not anyone's fault. People don't know what they don't know, especially in finance where people keep a lot of ideas secret. Uh, it's totally understandable why this would happen. And after seeing this and having users come to me, ask me for backtesting advice, I realized I need to make a podcast episode on this. Now, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. In fact, we don't know what we don't know. And this is really embarrassing for me, but I'll put myself out there. I only found out what the Louvre was three years ago. I never really grew up around art or was exposed to it, so sometimes what seems obvious to us may not be obvious to others. My hope is that all my listeners who are listening in, if you are creating quantitative strategies or you're creating a product that sells data, um, that sells strategies to hedge funds and all that sort of stuff, you will employ some of these methods or this podcast will get you to rethink about the problem. And like I said, the problem with a poorly formed backtest is that you will lose money. Your backtest will work historically, but you'll fail miserably in the future for reasons we'll get into. And before you know, we really get into this, I do want to say if you're a purely discretionary gut trader, actually a lot of famous discretionary gut traders also do run back tests because it gives you a baseline for your level of thinking. And what I mean by that is that let's say you're a discretionary, tr discretionary trader that only looks for stocks that are undervalued. So you may look as an initial screen a PE ratio. You may not assign much value to it, but you look at the PE ratio. Now, a P.E. ratio is the price-to-earnings ratio. Basically, a low P.E. tends to mean that the stock is undervalued. A high P.E. tends to mean it's overvalued. That's just a very broad generalization. Oftentimes, the market is pricing something in. Like, there's a reason the P.E. is low. There's a reason the market's undervaluing it. Anyway, so a discretionary trader may be like, you know what, I first look at P.E. just to get an initial vibe of what's going on. Well, if you run a backtest of whether or not PE actually results in profitability, that gives you a baseline for that initial screen. Let's say you use PE, but you do a backtest and the PE ratio only tends to really matter like 52% of the time. Well, now you're not going to place much weight on PE at all. And this is what discretionary traders do when they look at backtests. So then what are the main issues with these backtests that we often see? Well, the main issues I've really boiled down to three big offenders. The first is overfitting and model robustness, two is the dual in-sample problem, and three is product knowledge. But let's start off with the first. What is overfitting? Well, let's look back at our previous example that we said if a stock drops 5% in 5 days, we will buy the stock and hold it for the next 10 days. It's kind of clear why we chose some of those numbers. I mean, 5 days is the number of business days in a week. It's another way of saying one week. And 10 days is two weeks. So a 5% drop in five days and holding it for 10 days is really a 5% drop in one week and then holding it for two weeks. And 5% is also a nice round number. We're not choosing 5.135%, we're just choosing 5%. It's a very simple, easy, clean number. And believe it or not, that parameter is actually really important. Having a nice, clean number is important because what if our strategy was wildly profitable at 5%, 
But at 5.1%, if we had a 5.1% drop in five days, the strategy was not profitable at all. So what if it went from returning 10% a year to 0% a year when you move from 5% to a 5.1% drop? See, that 10 basis points or that 0.1% should not impact the profitability of the model that much. That really means the model is not robust. Robustness is really how your model deals with all sorts of these different events, these different changes, how sensitive it is to them, and how stable the return of the model is due to outside market events. So the, these numbers are actually quite important in making sure that we're not just overfitting, because overfitting harms model performance. Now, how could we overfit this model? So we can overfit when we tweak our model parameters. Now, a parameter is something in our model that we can change. In the 5% to 5.1% example, that's one parameter we can change, and that's our first parameter in this model, how much a stock drops. Remember, we're measuring if a stock drops 5% in five days, we will buy and hold the stock for 10 days. That's the strategy we're testing. The first parameter is how much the stock drops, 5%. The second parameter is how in how many days do we measure that drop? In this case, we're measuring the 5% drop in five days or one week. So our second parameter is five days or one week. Now the third parameter in this model is how long do we hold the stock for before we sell it? In this case, we're, hold, we're planning to hold the stock for 10 days or two weeks. So we have three parameters in this model. This model of a 5% drop in five days and holding for 10 days, let's say it returns 2% a year, but really that's not good enough. So let's say we tinker our model, we keep trying to find different parameters, we play with all three parameters until we get a 9% a year performance if we do the following. Instead of a stock dropping 5% in 5 days and holding for 10 days, we say if a stock drops 7.62% in 12 days, we will buy and hold the stock for 16 days. But where do these numbers come from? We chose 5% in the original bag test because it was a very clean, easy, nice round number, it was a multiple of 5, and so on. But what is 7.6%? That's not really an odd number. It's like we literally chose a random number because it fit the best. What about the measuring the drop in 12 days? What's 12 days? Where does 12 come from? It's not really a week or two weeks. It's actually two weeks and two days. And why did we choose buying and holding the stock for 16 days? That's not three weeks. That's three weeks and one day. See, the, the model you create, the backtest you create, the profitability should not be drastically different if we, let's say instead of measuring the drop in 12 days, we measured it in 10 days, right? 10 days is a very clean number. It, a model's profitability should not drastically differ by holding it for two days, especially in the time frame we're looking at. If it does, it means your model is really fitting noise. And let me get into an example of what I mean by that. Because you may be wondering, Rishi, why does it matter? Who cares? This model, the 7.6% drop in 12 days and holding for 16 days, did so much better. Doesn't this mean that this model works? After all, that's what the data shows. Well, let me take, let me spin this in a different direction that may make overfitting a little bit more obvious. Every week on a Thursday at 8.30 a.m. in the U.S., the government releases numbers with the number of people filing for unemployment. This is called initial jobless claims. Many researchers and Wall Street analysts try to predict this number as it can sometimes move markets, especially after a recession. In 2008, for example, traders watched this release because it helped guide the economic recovery. If the economy was healing faster than people thought, markets would rise and less people would file for jobless claims. If it was healing slower than people thought, markets would fall, generally speaking, if the initial jobless claims were higher than what people expected. More people were filing for unemployment. 
So let's look at this data set. Now, Google has a tool called Google Correlate. And what it does is, is that it lets you submit data to Google and Google tells you what search results were correlated to that time series. So if we took the time series of the initial jobless claims, it comes out once a week on a Thursday at 8.30 a.m. So we take that time series of jobless claims and we give it to Google. And Google will tell us what search results correlate to unemployment claims. So maybe we can find a search term that gives us an indication of how many people are filing for unemployment. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Google actually does this stuff with figuring out how quick the flu is spreading. This is part of their algorithm where they can detect where the flu is spreading and how it's spreading and how fast it's spread. So why not try this with financial data? And actually Google has a paper where they do this on financial data, but that point aside. So I submitted the initial jobless claims time series data to Google Correlate, and the highest correlated search phrase was loan modification with a correlation of 96%. This actually could make sense because when people are searching for loan modifications, maybe they want to tweak their mortgage to get a lower interest rate. But remember, the 08 recession, we were also going through a housing crisis. So when you look at that 96% correlation, you may think, you know what, that might actually be well-founded. But the secondary question is, well, great, that's wonderful looking back, but could we really use this indicator going forward? Now, 08 was a bit different because it was a mortgage crisis. It was really led by a housing bubble, so it makes sense many people wanted to modify their home loans and reduce the rates. What would have happened in 2001, or what happens in a future financial crisis? In 2001, there was a tech bubble bursting, rather than a housing bubble burst. So would loan modification be just as prevalent in 2001? Now that's a fun little experiment I'll let you explore about, but naturally thinking, if we had an economic crisis, and let's say maybe it was related to Europe going under or China going through a terrible market crisis, and let's say it affects U.S. markets, well then, will load modification really lead to unemployment claims? And this is what you have to think of when you're looking at data. Now, let's take a look at some of the other search terms that correlated with the initial jobless claims, with the unemployment filings. Another one is Laguna Beach Jeans. The search term Laguna Beach Jeans correlated 95% with unemployment claims. Now remember, loan modification was 96%. So really, 1% difference, Laguna Beach Jeans could very well be an indicator of people filing for unemployment. Of course, this is clearly nonsensical, uh, unless there's something about Laguna Beach Jeans, I actually have never even heard of them, uh, that I don't understand. But this is what we call a statistical artifact, or oftentimes it's called a spurious correlation, or spurious relationship is the statistical term for this. Now, Google correlates a bit of a fun uh, thing, and I'm realizing I've plugged Google a bit too much in this podcast episode. Um, I think it's probably been like three times, spreadsheets correlate, and I think I mentioned it previously before. Uh, this kind of reminds me of when I was watching uh, Terminator 2 the other day, and I, I, I realized for the first time how often Pepsi is noticed. Um, now I just kind of plugged Pepsi. Anyway, that aside, the point is, with this correlation example, we're literally just digging, digging, digging through data until we find a relationship. Now that relationship could be meaningful, or it could be completely spurious, like Laguna Beach jeans. This is called overfitting, modifying data until we get the result that we want. Now let's say the loan modification actually was predictive. That's such a specific term. What if in a different financial crisis, it had no impact on being a predictive measure of unemployment claims? This is another problem with overfitting. When you get so specific, 
the model doesn't really work outside of a specific time period. Now, this is something you should definitely test. Play around Google Correlate. There's some other good spurious correlation sites. One is tylerviggen.com, T-Y-L-E-R-V-I-G-E-N.com. He has a whole ton of different uh, spurious correlations, and they're kind of amusing. Uh, some of them are a bit dark humor, but they're kind of amusing, so check them out. So we just described what overfitting is and the problems associated with it. Basically, you're starting to fit what we call noise, which can result in random relationships that are nonsensical. And also, it reduces model robustness. So as different market conditions happen, your model's profitability may drastically suddenly change. And so it's a little bit, it becomes almost too sensitive to different marketing market conditions. And as we see, markets often go through different cycles. If we're running a backtest, we are a data scientist. It doesn't matter your programming knowledge or statistical knowledge, you've now become a data scientist. And as a newfound data scientist or experienced one, depending upon your background, we must practice self-discipline. So if you are looking to improve yourself now as a data scientist, there are plenty of resources online, but I will always argue that finance is some of the most, uh, has some of the most rigorous standards in data science, just because if you're wrong, you'll find out immediately and you'll be out of a job. So we as people can always torture and twist data to tell us what we want it to tell us. You see this all the time when political issues arise and you have two lobbying groups who will use data to support their side of the story. Well, how is that possible? How can two groups who are on opposite sides of the issue use statistics to prove their own point? Well, that's because these groups take some level of truth and they use statistics in the way that they want them to tell their side of the story. It's a common human bias. There's a great book put forward forth by the CIA called the Psychology of Intelligence Analysis. It was made public domain, and it talks about all of our psychological biases when we're looking at data. For example, too much data can be paralyzing, or how we store memory. It's a fantastic book. A link will be uh, in the blog. Someone I know, a, a trader I respect deeply, told me it's the best trading book he's ever read, even though it was meant for data analysis for CIA analysts. Nonetheless, great book. I recommend you all read it. But the point is, in markets, is that if we are not honest with ourselves, we cannot do the same thing these lobbying groups can do. If we are even slightly off, if we are slightly not honest with us, if we are slightly off the objective truth, the market will take our money. I don't mean that with a tinfoil hat on. I truly mean that your model will not work and you will lose money. So we have to find truth and be real with ourselves. If we are dishonest, we will lose money with ourselves. There is no politics. There is no political structure. You only really answer to yourself when you're trading. And there are a great number of trading books that focus on trading psychology. One is by uh, Brett Steenbarger. He's a friend of mine. Uh, email frequently enough. And uh, he's been a great guide for me improving my own uh, personal biases. And I'll link to his book. He has a number of books out. Um, he actually recently retired full-time to work on another book, and I'm really looking forward to what he puts out. But he's a great intellectually rigorous and curious guy. So we have to study ourselves. We have to find truth in ourselves, and we have to approach markets understanding our biases. So to do that, Every experienced trader, every successful trader, I mean every single one, has a journal or a process in place that they use to keep track of their biases, performance, and ideas. I have a list, and I'll share with you 10 of them. I'll share 10 things and so you can get a sense of how I think, how I sort of approach this, and I'm sure you'll find value in them as well. But no matter if you're a discretionary trader or a quantitative, a journal and a process in place is absolutely crucial. These rules you have to individually craft for yourself. And maybe some of mine will work for you and maybe some won't. 
But notice in my 10 rules, I don't include any specific statistical test. And the reason why is that these are my very last stage tests when I'm looking at the data. Because if I use statistics early on, I can get it to tell me what I want it to tell me. But I have to be asking the right questions. I have to be coming in with a problem with an open objective mindset. And that is not what statistics will tell me. That some statistics is a tool to help me sort of get through noise, but it's not one that helps me frame the right questions. And people who use data mining, they try to find like tons of correlation and try to come up with that are essentially getting data statistics to tell them an idea. And that is a very wrong, that's the quickest way to lose your money. There are very few people who can pull that off successfully. High frequency tends to sort of rely on that. Uh, but those people have been trained in data science, taken rigorous courses, have had people mentoring them to make sure they're not doing it in the wrong way. Um, but for the mass, vast majority, and including the largest hedge funds, they use very simple math. Now, if you ask any experienced trader, and I mean every experienced trader, they will tell you simplicity is favored over complexity in a backtest. So you should include spe st specific statistical tests. You should look at distributions. You should CP values. You should run t-tests and you should do all of that. But that should not be the early step. That should really be the last step. Now, if you look at the papers published by AQR, the second largest quantitative hedge fund, or even the stuff by Bridgewater, the largest fund, uh, you'll find some of their research is actually totally accessible. And their math doesn't really get any more complex than calculus. And even that, the majority of their math can be done with algebra. And the stuff that does rely on calculus, you can watch YouTube videos and teach yourself. It's really not that complex. And I'm going to be really controversial here, and I've said it before, that all these PhDs, you see them hiring, it's really partially a marketing gimmick. I mean, if you read their papers, you're going to be like, wow, you don't really need a PhD in theoretical physics to actually understand this. What they do like, though, about PhDs is that they apply the scientific mindset to data. Now, a problem, a huge problem in scientists, being a former scientist myself, is that uh, replication of studies is very poor. And this is something the scientific community is trying to fight. Oftentimes, uh, scientists are rewarded on new research, not replicating old research. So the incentives for even science are to come up with new things, not to check their peers. Um, now, they do have peer-reviewed research, which does help, but the problem is even worse in finance, and studies show this, that finance replication is even worse, and in my personal experiences, I could only replicate approximately one in four academic papers that came out, or online studies I've seen people put together. This is something my mentor told me he also could only replicate, approximately one in four, uh, between 20 or 30% of papers. So I'll link to some papers by AQR just so you can get an idea of the simplicity of their models and their simplicity of their thinking. And the truth is, I often see uh, new quantitative traders come in, trying to do machine learning off the bat, run advanced statistical analysis and so on, but that doesn't make a better trader. It's just tools in a toolbox. In fact, that gives you more creative ways to really part with your money. So you'd, like I said, you'd be surprised with how simple these quantitative strategies are. And the number of people I know who are using machine learning algorithms and trading, I can really count on one hand. And the ones I can count on one hand, for them, it's typically a last stage optimization. So typically they have a model that's been working and the machine learning is a slight optimization that slightly boosts performance. Very rarely, and like I said, outside of high frequency and maybe uh, a couple hedge fund managers here and there, the majority of their strategy is not machine learning. The biggest hedge funds out there, machine learning is not the core of their strategy. It's simply a slight tweak, a slight optimization. So right now I know machine learning is a sexy thing in tech. I see it all the time. Uh, but in trading, it's 
really a tool to your detriment. Um, the tragedy, the st strategies I traded uh, were very simple, just combined in a unique way, and the unique way actually involved simple algebra. So um, it's it's not complicated at all. But let's move on to the ten things I look at when I'm crafting a strategy. Now you'll notice these things I look at typically um, are representative of the scientific mindset or process. So the the first thing I always look at is when I have an idea, I think to myself, why would this idea work? What are the current market conditions that would support this idea working? I do background research. I try to get a sense. I look at uh, whatever I can find. I look at similar studies, all that sort of stuff. And that forms my second part. And this part is very important. Have a hypothesis or null hypothesis before you run the study. Have an idea of what you think will happen before you run the study. And this is also important because it helps you identify your bias. If you're noticing you're running a ton of studies and 90% of the time or 80 or 70% of the time it's matching your hypothesis, that means you may be torturing data, right? It's not definitive, but it may be that you're overfitting data. The third question I ask myself is, what are the relevant research papers out there? And has anyone tried this? Uh, oftentimes we think, um, especially in markets, that ideas are unique. But if you look at the way markets reward people handsomely with people unique ideas. So a lot of people spend a lot of their creative energy coming up with different trading models. And so oftentimes, like, and this happened to me all the time, I'll come up with an idea, I think it's unique, and then I Google it and it turns out there are like three papers on it. But that doesn't mean you should not do that. Like I said, the strategies I traded that were profitable were very well-researched, published studies just combined in a way that not many people did. Now, secondly to that, uh, my trading mentor, like I said previously, told me he's been able to only replicate 20 to 30 percent of academic papers or studies people publish online or even papers published by banks. And I would say the exact same thing has been true for me. I can't replicate very many of them. And oftentimes I'll find huge procedural errors. Um, it's to no one's fault. I'll get to that in a moment, but we don't know what we don't know. Now, the fourth question I ask is, should this idea or theory work across markets or across stocks? Or does it only work for one specific stock or one asset class? And if it only works for one, why? Why does it not work across? This is a question I need to answer because if I can't answer it, it's a huge warning sign to me. I found one strategy that only works for one particular stock. Given the number of stocks out there, given the number of prices, it's very easy to match noise. And if I can't explain why it only works for one specific thing or one specific asset class, or maybe it only works for commodities, that means I may have overfit data. The next question, number five, is what is the risk-adjusted return of this model? Or what is the Sharpe ratio? Basically, what's the average return and volatility of this model? And is it good enough to really match what I want to do? Or is this really not worth the risk? Okay. And you have to remember that when you're looking at the performance, you really have to discount it for transaction costs, for potential of overfitting, um, oftentimes I knock off like 0.2 off the sharp um, or a couple uh, one to two percent off the yearly performance because I knew there was probably some level of overfitting I myself could not uh, discount I myself could not fully remove so instead I removed it from the strategy's performance to correct for my bias okay and this is kind of the thinking you have to do the sixth question I asked myself and I keep a tally of this on a notepad is how many times did I run the model and change the parameters in the model how many times, and secondly, how many times did these changes result in better performance? I keep both tallies because I like to know how much I tortured and twisted the data. If you mark a tally every time you change a parameter, you have a visual representation of how many times you got the data to tell you what you wanted it to tell you. And even if I made a coding bug and I'm fixing the coding bug, I still make a tally. So uh, the seventh is 
Does the model trade all stocks equally? Does the return of the strategy come from all stocks equally or the majority of the returns driven by a couple stocks? Now, this is important because, uh, you know, your strategy could lose money every year, but one stock you made 50% in a week. Well, why did that happen? That You should be able to explain it and there should be a clear reason why. And if that's the case, your strategy should be specifically looking for what those events, which we would talk, call tail events. Uh, and the eighth is for all those big gains and losses in the strategy, like the 50% gain in a week, which I just mentioned, are they coming from data errors? Now I used, uh, Bloomberg when I was trading, that's a $24,000 a year service. Uh, my firm paid for, and you expect at that much money, their data better be accurate all the time. Well, it wasn't. Uh, they often had huge mistakes in the middle of the day. I get into specifics, but these mistakes were literally just game changers. They could be the result of massive profitability or massive losses. And I had to run my own algorithms to make sure their data was correct. We had to do it. Even if it's not big gains and losses, uh, check your data always for errors. Oftentimes the big gains and losses help reveal it. And the ninth is going to be, when will the strategy fail? This is such an important question because I know personally, I always look at gains. So... I tend to be more optimistic, so I have to ask myself, when will this strategy fail? If you're a pessimistic person, you may have to ask yourself, when will this strategy succeed? And you have to know both sides, though, when it will fail and when it will succeed. Because if you don't know when it fails or when it succeeds, you don't really know the strategy or why it makes money. And the tenth is, how does the profitability of the strategy change if I slightly tweak a parameter? Now, remember, if we, in our previous example, we measured the return of a stock if we held it for 16 days versus 10 days. Well, let's say at 16 days, the stock returns 50%. And at 15 days, it returns 0%. Does that one day difference, can you, is there a logical reason why that's such a huge difference? And if not, why? If there is a difference, there should be a relationship you can describe. So let's say at 16 days, it returns 50%. At 50 days, it returns 40%. At 14 days of holding, it returns 30%. 13 days, returns 20%. Notice how there's a relationship. For every day less we hold it, our, our strategy reduces in profitability by 10%. That relationship existing is important because it shows there is a relationship. There is a reason why the parameter, changing the parameter, increases profitability. It's just one tell. So this is an incomplete list, but I think it's a great starting point. And as you, you can see, it addresses certain biases I have. And you really need to be honest with yourself and come up with more. So now I want to move into some of the other issues I see. And these issues I'm going to focus a little less time on because actually quite a bit less time because uh, overfitting and model robustness are really the most challenging things. So the next thing I look for and I often see is the dual in-sample problem. Now we're going to explain what an in-sample test is and out of sample and what the dual sample problem is. When a data scientist looks at data, typically they break down the data set into two parts, something called the in-sample and out of sample. Sometimes there'll be a third part Think of it as sort of the out of out of sample. But for the most part, let's simplify and say, we take a data set, we say this part's in sample, this part's out of sample. Let's use the prices of the S&P, for example. An in sample test is what we train our model on. It's often called sort of a training set, right? We take our back-tested model and we say, how would it perform in this data set? Then we tweak it, we tweak it, we get to the parameters we want. And then we say, okay, now we have our model. We've perfected it to believe we truly capture what our idea is. And then we'll take that and then we'll apply it once to something called an out of sample test. And the out of sample is data that this model has never seen before. So the thinking is, is that if we train this model, if we build this model in this data and we can repeatedly test it, it'll give us an idea of how the model performs. 
but the true test is how this model will perform on data it's never seen before. So we set aside some data and we call that the out of sample. We test it on the out of sample and we see if the performance is comparable. Now, there are many statistical ways to do this, but this is sort of the gist of how data science scientists approach this problem. It helps sort of address the issue of overfitting in many ways, or it should. And here is where the problem becomes a little bit more complicated. Oftentimes, people will run the in-sample test, train the model, train the model, train the model, say, hey, these parameters work the best. Let's say the parameters in this test, using our original backtest example, if the S&P falls 5% in 5 days, and we buy and hold it for 10 days, it will result in X amount of performance. And let's say we got to that, we got to those values by tweaking the in-sample data by, let's say we started off with a 2% drop in five days and we tweaked it, tweaked it, tweaked it, and we found the best performance was a 5% drop in five days and we hold it for 10 days. And let's say in the in-sample performance, it gave us a 10% return a year. Now let's say we bring that to the out-of-sample data and let's say it only returns 1% a year. Well, that's a bit concerning, right? In data it's never seen before, it significantly underperforms the data we trained it on. Now, this is how the analysis should be. In this case, we would be like, okay, we overfitted, we overparameterized, uh, this model is drunk, let's throw it out. But what often happens is in markets, people will use the training set, training set, training set, the in-sample test, then they'll use it on the out-of-sample and not get the data they want. So they go back to the in-sample and they tweak the parameters more and like, oh, this now performs a little worse in the in-sample, but we think we overfit it less. And they go to the out-of-sample and the performance is slightly better, but they say, you know what? We think the performance could be even better. So let's go back to the in-sample data. And they tweak the data more and they're like, you know what? It performs even worse in sample, but it still gives us, let's say, 6% a year, which is still good. Then they take it to the out-of-sample and let's say the out-of-sample now returns 4% a year. And they're like, you know what, that's pretty good. Or maybe the out-of-sample performs 8% here, it performs even better. But do you see what just happened? The out-of-sample is really just another in-sample. There is no out-of-sample. They're training the data on both the in-sample data and out-of-sample data. And therefore, you can't even tell if the model is good. It's, it could be pure junk. Now, typically, in addition to the out-of-sample, you may get a backtest that also shows you the live trading. And the live trading is purely data that you could have not seen before. There is no training data. There is none of that. The live data can be one of the greatest tells. So I was at a conference, and it was with a bank, and the bank showed us a ton of trading models they developed. They showed us the in-sample and out-of-sample, and then they showed us the live trading results. My trading mentor, uh, my boss at the time, would look, at, look down on his paper, and he was just doodling, kind of like with a grin on his face, and then he would draw the backtest they showed, and then he would show a down arrow. He would show the strategy underperforming or negatively performing. Then he looked at me and he said, I've done a lot of these studies. I know they don't perform this well. They've overfit the data. And then sure enough, when they showed us the live trading data, it pretty much matched uh, my boss's results. It was really uncanny. He's, he's a brilliant guy. And I was just so impressed, and I realized often people, even professionals, do the dual in-sample. Rather than have an in-sample and out-of-sample, they really just have two in-samples because they've tweaked the data to get the out-of-sample results that they wanted. Now, the second problem uh, this really poses, the in-sample, out-of-sample, is in markets, we can go through very different regimes. For example, the markets had a bull market in 1990. However, if we did our in-sample test in the 1990s, and then we compared in 2000, the 2000 we faced two recessions. It was a drastically different market dynamic. So is it really fair to compare the two? What if we put on top of this, we're like, you know what? We're only going to apply this model when markets are trending. Well, now you're kind of overfitting. You're kind of doing the dual and sample problem because you're saying, you know what? I'm only going to run this model when these conditions are met. And now you're always looking for those conditions 
to be met. So now you've applied a whole nother layer. You're overfitting by being very selective about the regime you choose. So this problem becomes far, far more complex, and it's near impossible to solve. I was at another conference where this was probably the only positively performing hedge fund, quantitative hedge fund that focused on FX trading, foreign exchange trading. And one of the questions someone asked the founder was, how do you know when a model stops working? Everyone just kind of got quiet because that is one of the most unsolved problems in trading. There is no scientific solution. People have methods, people have theories, people have processes, and it's really dependent upon your trading style. But you don't know when a model stops working. A model that's in the top 5% could be down two years out of 10, and that would be statistically normal. So this is the real big challenge with trading, is separating the signal from noise and being able to decide, and there is no real answer. So it's so important, the in-sample, out-of-sample, the overfitting, the model robustness, we get as close to best as possible. The third problem I want to discuss is product knowledge. This is, can essentially be recapped to, you don't know what you don't know. To describe this problem, I want to describe an argument I got on the internet, okay? And uh, as internet arguments go, it was not the most pleasant. So I'm on this website that we've all probably seen. It's where users can submit their own stories. Actually, you know what? I'll say the name, Seeking Alpha. So I'm on Seeking Alpha. There is a top contributor, and I quickly look at his backtest, and he says this. I backtested only holding the S&P 500 ETF for November and December every year, and it outperformed holding it the entire year. And I looked at his data and I realized he forgot to include dividends. He forgot to include what we call carry. Now to step back a bit, the idea of carry in trading is that the market rewards you for holding on to risk. And that's carry. So typically you'll often find stocks that pay a high dividend, a very high dividend, also have more volatility. Likewise, you'll find countries that have higher interest rates, their currencies may have higher volatility. So typically the market rewards you for the volatility by paying you a carry. The idea is, is that you get rewarded for holding on risk, and that's called carry. How much the reward is really depends. For example, some stocks may pay lower dividends, other may, others may pay higher dividends. The carry changes. And the reason carry was so important in this backtest is because he's comparing holding stocks for only the last two months of every year, but dividends are the market rewarding you for holding stocks the rest of the year, for the other 10 months of the year. So you have to include dividends, and often you have to assume that you're reinvesting the dividends because it's really the opportunity cost of money. Think of it that way. But just him ignoring dividends, I did the backtest, I included dividends, and I found his backtest made no sense. It, it was not accurate. Collecting dividends four times a year during the four quarters actually makes up for that slight increase of only holding it two months a year. Um, and in fact, I couldn't even really replicate his two months of the year, but that's a separate issue. The point is, at a conceptual level, he forgot to include dividends, and that's the market rewarding you for holding stocks. And when I went to him and I, and I told him this, he's like, oh, that doesn't matter because we're only holding it for two months of the year. And I thought he misunderstood me, so I explained again. I said, no, dividends are the market rewarding you for holding stocks the entire time period. So if you're comparing it to only holding stocks for two months of the year, you have to consider the money you're forgoing by not holding it the entire year. He just didn't respond, and at that point, everyone had already commented saying, great study, awesome analysis, and the damage had been done. Now, this individual didn't know what he didn't know, and he didn't bother to look into it and have a debate with me. And there are often things I don't know I don't know. Um, one time I was reading an academic paper, and I couldn't replicate the results, and I go back, and I'm like, I can't replicate it. And then I go to my boss, he looks at it, he's like, ah, there's a huge error right there. And it turns out the strategy involved trading live cattle. 
you can trade live cattle futures. You can trade them exchange-driven. Now, with futures, if you listen back to one of my earlier podcasts, episode two, uh, futures let you digitally trade something, and then you can either accept delivery or uh, provide delivery. In that, if you buy a, a live cattle future and you hold it until it expires, a farmer is going to send you tons of live cattle. That's how the futures market works, the agricultural futures market works. Well, in this paper, they did not use live cattle futures prices. They used live cattle spot prices. Spot is the immediate delivery. So if you're trading live cattle, not on futures, the spot price is literally going into an auction house at a farm and bidding on cattle and then taking cattle with you that same day back home. Spot, when it comes to live cattle, is more of a theoretical concept than it really is tradable for a hedge fund. So when you did their study using the futures, you found a drastically different result. So they just didn't realize, uh, the people who wrote the paper didn't realize that you can't trade cattle spot. You can trade gold spot. You can go to a bank or you can go to a jewelry store and buy an ounce of gold, and that's buying gold spot. Or you can buy a gold future, and in the future, that gold will be delivered to you on the date the contract sets. This really boils down to you don't know what you don't know. And the way I try to solve this problem is that you have to find a group of people that you trust and you can share ideas with. You can provide them useful feedback. They provide you useful feedback, your friends, right? So if you know your friend knows a a subject very well and you trust him, you can share with him your idea and he or she will tell you the gotchas, the things to look out for. Like, hey, you shouldn't, you can't trade live cattle spot. Make sure you only use the futures contract. This issue is a little bit more difficult to solve because you really need a community. And for that, there are plenty of great communities. I can advertise Tingo, find friends, maybe an investing club, maybe at a meetup, uh, maybe an online community like on Reddit. Just look wherever you can for a community and build out that trust, build out that sharing of knowledge. And remember that in order to get feedback, you need to give your idea up. So if it's something very dearly precious to you, remember that this model that you think is totally unique could actually lose you money because you're missing out on something you don't know you don't know. It's a trade-off and you really have to consider it. Anyway, this wraps up my big issues on backtesting, and I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Uh, Feel free to visit Tingo at TIINGO.com. Check out the new mobile version, the new fundamental data, the new security, uh, the new makeover that Tingo.com has undergone. And if you like what we're doing with the podcast, the mission, the website, web app, please consider paying for Tingo at TIINGO.com forward slash support. It's TIINGO.com forward slash S-U-P-P-O-R-T. And if you have any feedback for me or want to discuss an idea, feel free to email me at Rishi at Tingo.com. That's R-I-S-H-I at T-I-I-N-G-O.com. On the podcast cover, you can see the spelling of Rishi, R-I-S-H-I. All right, everyone. It was great having this session with you, and I look forward to your feedback. 